This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jesse Goolsby, author of the novel, I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them. In addition to being a writer, Goolsby is an Air Force officer and serves as genre editors for the literary journals War, Literature, and the Arts and the Southeast Review. His first book, I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them, tells the tale of three American soldiers who are haunted by a brutal choice they faced in Afghanistan, kill or be killed. The novel highlights the three men's journeys leading up to joining the military and chronicles how they deal with their lives and their families in war's aftermath. We began the interview talking about what Goolsby wanted his novel to investigate. It's really about identity and all of the aspects that make up a life, not just a military service, for example, But music and sex and death and hopes and sports and all those types of things which really color um, an individual's existence. And what I would hope the book would do or maybe shed some new light on is often, at least in the traditional mode, when we think of war literature, we perhaps think of books that investigate the lives of soldiers or airmen or Marines or sailors, um, we, we often limit, at least in literature, those experiences to wartime or combat literature. And what I would hope that this book would do is put those wartime experiences up side by side with the many, many domestic experiences that also induce successes and traumas um, and joy and love and courage. Um, so it's really a book about, again, human life, um, but not privileging the military service over the familial life, the domestic life, or other types of professions that one might have. So basically, the structure of this book is you have these three characters, and you switch between their lives, both in combat and then back in their various homes, which take place in different states where they each live. I would say it's almost like a stream of consciousness. I felt like there was this dream state or something, some kind of flow between all of it. One of the words that I would use is, you know, it's very atmospheric. And and the reason why I would say it's atmospheric is because I'm, one of the things uh, I think the book attempts to do is to really show um, a holistic point of view through many, many different points of view. It's almost communal. While we do have three main um, protagonists, if you will, and and certainly the the novel centers on their stories and their journeys, um, I found it impossible to tell their journeys without the the clear um, perspectives of spouses or friends or community members. And so what that does um, is, is, as you said, really does move us 
back and forth, not just in time, but in perspective. And so we get a narrative that isn't disjointed, but it is very atmospheric in that it's um, looking at traumas and successes from various sides and from different uh, vantage points. So you begin the book with this combat scene in Afghanistan. There's these three main characters, Wintrick, Dax, and Torres. They're protecting their area, and basically someone is walking toward them, they believe, with a bomb attached to her, and it turns out to be a child. And they just don't know. They don't want to shoot a child, but this person is coming closer and closer and closer, and they end up killing her. So they are put in an impossible situation that affects them their whole life. And I'm curious about that in in war, how combat puts you in these impossible situations, how you can't win in the psychology of that, of self-defense or personal destruction and the conundrum of that. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and then your inclusion of this pivotal moment in your book. One of the ways it's portrayed in a general sense is that, you know, uh, we have, you know, kind of clear patriotism. We have these broad brushstrokes of why people serve, what we ask them to do, what our general expectations are of these folks when they come home. Really, we're asking 17 to 22-year-olds to go out into the world in the toughest imaginable situations and navigate where they have to make a life-or-death decision. But add to that the fact that our two uh, ongoing wars and our nation's longest wars, our our enemies, right, the the Geneva Convention for the other side doesn't exist, right? It, It does for us, but we're asking these young men and women to go make these decisions, as you put, I think, appropriately, that are nearly impossible with combatants that don't wear a uniform that don't prescribe to any rules. And so what what as a country and as local communities and as a VA system and as a communal conscience do we expect from people, um, even the best trained, most moral, however you want to define that, people, when we ask those individuals to go out and take lives? And I think what you get are people that, that are trying in those moments to survive. And the morality, although we want it to be at the forefront of their minds every second, is nearly impossible to do because they're trying to survive the possible situations. And so when they do take a life, they still have to come home and live with that every day. I don't think you can ever train someone appropriately to take a life. Now, in my novel, I think one of the things that's really investigating it especially for these three protagonists, is this initial and constant disorientation. Whatever we imagine war to be, it's something different for the individual. Fictionally, of my three protagonists, uh, Wintrick is immediately disorientated when he lands in country in Afghanistan, and he's not asked to kill. In fact, he's asked to heal in in some way with inoculations and prosthetic limbs. Imagine the initial disorientation when you're worried about your life every second, about where you're placing your next footstep, and yet you're asked to do something morally um, enlightening or positive by helping these people that 
that our own military may, in effect, in effect have injured. And in the specific case of the girl approaching um, the checkpoint, is there a right answer there? I, mean, I don't have that answer. But the answer for these three protagonists is that they, they want to survive. They want to live. They want to see their families. But with living, it'll entail a certain trauma that may never be recoverable. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jesse Goolsby, author of the novel I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them. Uh, among the violence that that these men experience is also their violence against each other. One of your main characters was raped by a fellow soldier and he cannot find the words at all to tell anyone, but it's just eating him up inside. Can you talk about your choice to put sexual assault in this book? And then I know you've done some work with sexual assault awareness in the military. One of the main topics I wanted to look at was sexual assault um, in the military. Um, and as you noted, I did spend some time in the Pentagon working um, for the Undersecretary of Defense for Personal and Readiness. Um, who oversees the sexual assault prevention and response efforts within all of the military. Um, and my time there was deeply impactful. Um, I take great pride in um, my work at the Pentagon. We have a long way to go, but I am proud of some of the steps that the, the military has taken to acknowledge, one, that there's a problem, and then two, to get proactive um, in handling it. Again, again, a long way to go. But in the, in the novel itself, you know, there's a couple reasons why I wanted to have that in the book. One, um, it, it did speak to um, the variety of enemies that, and the disorientation that, that members of the military in a realist fiction book could face. It's not just the enemy combatants. It is factually um, also possibly fellow military members. Uh, through sexual assault, and, and, and not just in combat zones, mind you, but, but across America as well. Um, and bringing that um, to the forefront, Wintrick has a longer road to go. Not only is he also involved in the checkpoint shooting, but to be a victim of sexual assault and rape, no matter who you are or where you are, um, but probably especially in Afghanistan, in uniform by another military member. There are so many foundational walls and expectations that you would have to break through to come to grips with this act occurring. He's a person that we grow to learn um, has deep-seated notions of masculinity and how those are projected. And for him personally, after this rape occurs, he struggles uh, and, and will continue to struggle even after the final pages of the book in finding an identity or recovering an identity or, or moving on. All of those are, are, are things that he's going to continue to struggle with because how does he talk about it? Is, is the choice that he makes to seek revenge fruitful in part of that recovery? Um, is con finally confessing to his wife is, is a step in the right direction? His use of drugs to cover the pain, both physical and emotional, it's understandable, but where, how can he recapture or capture a new identity in which he can find moments of repose and joy in his life after he's encountered this? Those are huge questions, again, 
for Winthrop individually, but even more importantly, the military and the society at large that has a massive, massive problem with sexual assault. One of the things I think the part in the book about their domestic lives is I think they're they're seeking connection, but they don't know how to do it. I mean, they're damaged and they're in pain. One pretty poignant part of the story is Torres comes home and he was already married before he left. His wife knows something is wrong, but he can't admit to her about the shooting and what happened. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the, you know, how the people closest to us we can't let in and how we want to let them in, but that is almost the most painful. As he kind of self-introspects, as he returns from Afghanistan, he has a lot of the external signs of there being nothing wrong. He walks down the street without major flashbacks. He looks at his family, and from his perspective, everything seems to be, at least initially, very healthy. Um, on on some clear kind of external clues. Um, but it's very clear that the wife, um, Anna, and, and the children, that, that something's wrong, something's off, that war, in essence, has changed him. But this is where it gets really tricky, I think, because war should change someone. I, I think, you know, if somebody comes back from war and, and they're the exact same person before they left, that seems to me very problematic. And I'm not trying to insinuate that everyone should go through a trauma um, and have to, um, you know, spend their entire lives recovering from said trauma, only that war should change people. In Armando's case, he doesn't yet know what to ask for. As he looks around and navigates the world in Colorado Springs that he's returned to, outside of getting out of the Army and maybe trying to start a new life, yeah, I mean, the intimacy with his wife, that she very, very clearly wants him to reach out to her. But it's not as simple as him harboring a secret and and then kind of confessing, and then there's this catharsis. But in real life, no matter what the trauma is or what the stress is, it doesn't matter if it's military or or somebody that's never been into military and some other completely domestic stress. It's extremely difficult to, one, self-analyze and understand the problem, and then second, to vocalize it in a way that even an empathetic, caring person would understand and could help. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jesse Goolsby, author of the novel, I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them. Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is Tobias Wolf, the, the very end of his short story, Bullet in the Brain. And I, I was near leaving the uh, Air Force Academy uh, when I was about 19 years old. And this is a story that um, an English professor handed me. And I've, I've never forgotten the power um, of this entire very short six-page story, but I'm going to read just the last uh, three paragraphs here of Tobias Wolf's Bullet in the Brain. This is what he remembered. Heat, a baseball field, yellow grass, the whirl whir of insects, himself leaning against a tree as the boys of the neighborhood gather for a pickup game. 
He looks on as the others argue the relative genius of mantle and maze. They've been worrying this subject all summer, and it has become tedious to Anders, an oppression like the heat. Then the last two boys arrive, Coyle and a cousin of his from Mississippi. Anders has never met Coyle's cousin before and will never see him again. He says hi with the rest, but takes no further notice of him until they've chosen sides and someone asks the cousin what position he wants to play. Shortstop, the boy says. Short's the best position they is. Anders turns and looks at him. He wants to hear Coyle's cousin repeat what he's just said, but he knows better than to ask. The others will think he's being a jerk, ragging the kid for his grammar. But that isn't it. Not at all. It's that Anders is strangely roused, elated by those final two words, their pure unexpectedness and their music. He takes the field in a trance, repeating them to himself. The bullet is already in the brain. It won't be outrun forever or charmed to a halt. In the end, it will do its work and leave the troubled skull behind, dragging its comet's tail of memory and hope and talent and love into the marble hall of commerce. That can't be helped. But for now, Anders can still make time, time for the shadows to lengthen on the grass, time for the tethered dog to bark at the flying ball, time for the boy in right field to smack his sweat, blackened mitt, and softly chant, they is, they is, they is. Do you want to talk about why you chose that? Well, first of all, the economy of bullet in the brain in six and a half pages is just, it's just incredible. And really what the, what the story's about, well, it's about life and everything is, as all the best short stories are, but it's really about the magic of language. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder of not just the magic of language, but the magic of life. I mean, it's the great antidote to sarcasm. It's the great antidote to boredom. It's those moments, and, and I've spoken a lot about peace and repose, those moments. of. But equal to those are, are times in our lives where things happen that we can't explain. And I'll err on the positive side of this and, and, and talk about the magic of, of beauty those interspersed moments of our life which are completely unexpected and that just transport us, that hit us, that cut us, that, that plant our world, which really makes us feel that everything we know could be wrong. And there's such beauty in those moments, and that's what this story does for me. It's, you know, when the protagonist is about to be killed, he literally has that, your life flashing before your eyes. And it's about all these moments, again, really quick, a series of moments that the protagonist doesn't remember. All of the moments that we may think are the most important in our lives. The traditional moments of, of height that we prioritize. And yet what the character right before he dies remembers and most values is not the traditional valued moments of a life, but the the odd magic of a mispronounced uh, sentence, you know, they is, which, I mean, just shows, uh, to me, which is just this great aesthetic reminder of, of innocence and, and keeping oneself open to those moments, 
to really fight against the jaded nature of perhaps a diurnal life and um, leaving yourself open for a little magic. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky or something that um, you were really pleased with in the end or something that changed a lot from the first draft. I'll read from a chapter, the very end of a chapter in uh, I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them. Uh, the chapter is called uh, Redwoods. And this is a chapter um, whose main protagonist is Kristen, and she's gone to the coast to drive through this redwood tree um, that has always been kind of a local dream of hers. It's really an escape. She's trying to find this moment of magic that we, we just talked about. And she gets over to the coast, and the redwood that she drives through is not what she has anticipated. In fact, it's a, it's a moment of planned magic that never happens. She's incredibly disappointed, and yet she finds herself on her way home uh, to Winthrop, who's really struggling at this point. She finds a new unexpected moment of magic where she pulls off the road and has this almost out-of-body experience where she's running through this redwood forest, and she doesn't really understand why. And I didn't know how to finish this chapter. I'd gotten Kristen into this, artistically, I'd gotten Kristen into this great place where she was having this, this incredible moment of exhilaration. But I had to bring her, I had to bring her back to earth, if, if you will. And what I'll read to you is, is the very end. And, and the only thing you really need to know is uh, um, Kristen is newly pregnant and she's um, having to decide. She does not know yet if she's going to keep the child. And again, she has Wintrick, a protagonist that's gone through a lot of trauma waiting for her back home. So she has the weight of the world really weighing on her, but she's just finished this kind of mad dash through the woods that's really exhilarated her in an ethereal sense in, in a way that she hasn't had in some time. When she opens her eyes, she's leaning on the tree, unaware how long she's been gone. Above her, the gray sky, and somewhere down the trail, voices calling out, and closer, the low bark of a dog. Kristen hurries back to the trail and glances around her. In the next moment, she finds herself running, striding out long and fast, unable to recognize the force that propels her forward. Her heart pounds in her ears and her arms swing wildly. She runs and leans into turns, now outside herself, beside herself. The force speeds by, the straining legs and heartbeat someone else's. She arrives back at her car, and the deserting parking lot faster than she guessed she would, and she bends over, hands on her knees, gasping. She waits for her mind to return to this body. Inside the car, she removes her sandals and leans back and feels her drenched shirt on her skin. She takes it off, drapes it over the passenger seat, and starts the car. Her right quad starts to twist, and she rubs at the pain. The insteps of her right and left feet are rubbed raw, and she knows that she'll suffer blisters. Breathing through her nose and out of her mouth, she waits until she can no longer hear her heartbeat. She turns on the stereo, puts on Modest Mouse, softly at first, then cranks the volume and sings. It's then, among the thrashing thoughts of driving home, of this mad dash, of her wet and blistering body, as she breathes in to attack the course of track two, that she realizes she's not nauseated. Inside the idling car, Kristen turns off the stereo, 
reclines her seat and slides her drying hands inside her shorts and over her lower belly. She pushes her belly out and feels the pressure against her hands. She wishes now that she hadn't pulled her parents so soon, at least not until she figures out what she wants. If she has the child, it'll have a March birthday. It seems so far away, 2007, spring. There's still snow in March. Kristen sits up and levers the seat upright. She punches the stereo button and track two comes alive. She runs her fingers through her hair and looks up past the neck in the windshield and she sees the way home. Tell me why you chose this. One of the things I was really interested in was trying to find moments. Adam Johnson says this so well. And so I'll have to steal from him. But he says, you know, people rarely recognize in the moment or or rarely have the emotional response in the moment of the trauma. And so I was really interested in trying to find ways to enter characters that showcase the delay or the the appropriate response to trauma at new and unexpected expected times, that, that feels very real to me. We don't know often in real time how to, how to deal with things, and so the tears don't come when, when we might want them to. The, the pain arises and infects different things in our lives, different images and sounds and smells, some of which we can't control. And this particular scene, I, I was really pleased with at the end because Kristen has a couple things weighing on her mind so heavily And all she's trying to do is escape them for a moment. And we realize in this moment, during her mad dash, that that there's no running away from these types of things. That that things can, emotions and lies and components of lives can happen simultaneously. She can be exhilarated, but also worried and conflicted at the very same time while she's still coming off this incredible high, this this odd run through a redwood forest. And yet at the same time as her heartbeat is decreasing, she can still feel the pressure of the next eight months of her life and the decision that she'll have to make. Where do you write? Um, most of the time I write at my dining room table looking um, out my front window at, at the cul-de-sac. That way I can uh, have the peace of the day, but also if my kids are home, I can see them playing out in the front yard and keep tabs on them. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm normally running, um, and so it'll be a, a variety of, of different environments, but um, running um, is all you need is a pair of shoes. And although I'm not far away from the home, it does it does seem to take me away mentally and really balance me well. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? One of my best friends and the great essayist, Brandon Lingle. He's the person that gets, uh, and, and vice versa, we get the first read on each other's work, and he's been a real, real blessing for honest and compassionate feedback. How have you dealt with rejection? It sounds weird, but I really don't see him as rejections, and maybe this is just a self-preservation thing. Um, I just see them as different sensibilities. And um, so I, I guess I would deal with rejection as um, 
just taking an extra step to make sure that the work is ready, um, that it's as good as it's going to be, and then try a new try a new place or, or try um, a, a different uh, an editor with a different sensibility that uh, that may enjoy the work. We, I, I think rejection is a really difficult way to look at work when really what we're talking about is human and editorial sensibility, and so that that makes that process um, much easier for me to navigate. And what is your favorite word? I don't know if that's my favorite word, but I love the word chronicle. And the reason why I love the word chronicle is because I still remember when I was eight years old, I guess that's third grade, and I was in class and we were reading and I was publicly reading as an eight-year-old and I got the word chronicle right. And I had never seen it before. And so I don't know what that says about my personality, but I still remember the word chronicle on that page. And whenever I, whenever I see that word, I might get a little jolt of pride. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jesse Goolsby, author of the novel, I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft on Aspen Public Radio and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. The theme music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.